for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. We are carrying on our, our series today in Acts. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how in the book of Acts, the kingdom of God advances, how the gospel is preached and it gradually expands throughout the Roman Empire. So it starts in Israel with this group of of people who see Jesus alive after he's died. They see him. They they, they testify to the fact they've touched him. They've seen him. They've spent time with him. They've seen the work that he does with them. And so then the gospel advances and it keeps going out and out and out. So we get Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the, the ends of the earth. The gospel starts getting preached. And Actually, what what we're going to engage with today is when Paul goes to Athens. So Paul ends up in what would have been one of the cultural capitals of the day in in Athens. Athens was the place where the the, the kind of idea of philosophy was really kind of born and took root. And we had different forms of philosophy that came out of Athens. And what you find is when we get to Acts 17, we're reading today, is you find that there are people there and they're debating their culture and they're debating life every day. And Paul starts to engage with these people. And he starts to talk to them about Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But in relation to that, I can't, you know, actually we have to relate that to our culture. So whenever you read the Bible, you need to do two things. You need to read it in its context. So you need to read it in terms of who it was written to, okay, at the time. And you need to say, okay, well, this was for them 2,000 years ago. But then you also need to then apply it to your context today. So you need to say, well, actually, what does this teach me today, living in my context, in my culture? And that's where every time you read the Bible, you need to open it up and just think, you know, don't, you need to do both of those things. Don't do one or the other. Don't just go, well, that was just for them. It's not for me. And don't go, this is just for me. It wasn't for them. You need to do both of those things. Okay, that's really important. So the biggest challenge, I would say, facing the church of our time is the rapid changes in our culture. Our culture has changed so quickly in, what, in, in less than a decade, as um, social media, as the internet, as our ability to connect and communicate with people so easily has kind of taken root. You know, we're all used to it now. You, you just wait. What's the last thing you do at night? Probably it's you turn your phone off. And then the first thing you do in the morning is you turn your phone on. We're all so used to being connected to everybody that actually that has changed a lot of our cultural norms. So one of the most striking changes results from post-modernity. Now, I'm not going to go into that in detail. I used to obviously teach art, and so I'd talk to you about post-modern art, and I could talk to you about that in detail if you wanted to. But this idea about post-modernity, one of the things that's happened with post-modernity is a rejection of absolutes. There are no absolutes anymore. There's only what you believe and what I believe. Okay? So you can have your truth, and I can have my truth. And they don't have to be the same thing. The danger is, though, is, is what you'll see if you go on Twitter or Instagram, is that Actually, if you start saying something that kind of rocks the, the kind of the boat, you get kind of abandoned, rejected, and pushed out. So you, as long as you kind of say what's generally acceptable, it's okay. In fact, actually, there's more judgmentalism now than there was before. Uh, but look, you see, the thing is, is that we can have our truth, and I can have my truth, and you can have your truth. And that's what our culture is like. So this shift in the perception of truth leads to ambiguous views. On all sorts of things, on gender, on relationships, on marriage, on money, on identity. It doesn't kind of matter what you believe anymore. It's totally okay. As long as it's okay for you, you know, you meet the person at work and they say, oh, good for you, you believe in that Jesus guy. And then, you know, they'll say, well, I believe in this, that or the other. And you just go, hmm, okay. Um, Because there is no absolutes anymore. 
And that is clearly at odds with, with what we believe as a church. Because we do believe that the Bible is the word of God. So we believe that God inspired what is written in the Bible. God inspired men and women, potentially, in some cases, to write some of the Bible. Okay, So we believe that God inspired the word of God. And that actually, when we read the Bible, when we're looking at it, we are hearing from God. We're hearing from God. Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. So we hear from God when we read the Bible. Now, that is at odds with a culture who says that actually there's no truth but your own truth. And Jesus said things like this. So here's, here's one of these things that will put it at odds. Our culture and the Bible at odds with one another. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's quite absolute. It's not ambiguous. Jesus isn't being ambiguous there. He's going, well, you can come to me. You can come to God through me, but also maybe through this, that, or the other. He doesn't say that. He says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. You see, there, there is a, a growing trend in, in some parts of Christianity to now just go, well, okay, well, look, all roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. It doesn't matter. Actually, it's fine. We, can, we, we all get there eventually, would be what some people say. In fact, actually, Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus places two very, Jesus, it's basically, it's just dual, it's dual isn't it? There's two, two, two directions you can go in in life. There's a way to destruction and there's a way to life. There's not several different ways, there's just two paths you can follow. So increasingly, our beliefs, our beliefs in Jesus as the, as the son of God, Jesus as the only one who can save us from death, and an eternity without God are at odds with a culture that would just embrace everything. And so in Acts 17, we read of Paul in Athens, and that was, as I've said already, one of the cultural capitals of the day. And it was the home of Greek culture, of philosophy, literature, and the arts. You, you can look it up, you can see lots of the artwork, the fantastic sculptures that were created by Greek artists. Some of them are still around to the, this day. Um, and you can still, if you want to, read what these Greek philosophers wrote I've read Phaedo by Plato. It's quite boring and long, okay? But it's quite interesting as well. There's some interesting things in these things because they're debating life. They're talking about the questions that we all talk about today. So anyway, so Paul gets to Athens. Let me read this to you. So this is Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, that's the current thinking of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the main two groups of philosophers in the first century. So some of those philosophers of the day also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Is this the, the aside that Luke writes in here? Verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to Aeropagus, saying, May we know this, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I mean, that sounds like Twitter or Instagram. Yes, all the time, something new. I need to find the new thing. It's exactly what it is like now. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown gods. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath, sorry, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and he quotes, in him we move and have our being. So Paul encounters Athenian culture. And what's his reaction to it? Well, First of all, what he finds is he finds pluralism. He finds that there are many gods being worshipped, that there's no sort of sense of actually kind of a definitive answer to anything. They're debating every day what's going on. They don't have an answer to any of these big questions, but yet they keep debating and debating and debating. So he encounters this culture that's like that. And, And he knows the truth. He knows Jesus. And so how does he then engage with that culture? What's his reaction well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And therefore, then, if, what's his reaction? So what should our reaction be today in 21st century Britain to our culture? So if that's how Paul reacts to his culture, and we'll talk about it in a minute, what is our reaction to be? How do we, in, in our church today, in our church culture today, how do we do church in a world where there is no black and white anymore, where there's just different shades of grey? How, how do we do church Well, I think there's a variety of options available to us. And I could point to different Christians who have taken some of these routes. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to dishonour people. I'm not going to give people's names in terms of famous Christians who would say some of these things. But look, there are different routes that people have taken in terms of how we engage with culture. Okay, And so let me just give you these four things. And I think there's only one of them that's right. But I'm going to give you all four. Collaborate, condemn, consume or contend. So, So these are the four things that I think you could do as a Christian with our culture. So let me, we're going to go through these together. So first of all, we could collaborate with culture. We could collaborate with culture. We could water down our beliefs or soften the message of what we believe. We could soften our message and make it more palatable to people. So we could just adopt a message about God is love. Well, God is love. God is love. God, God is love. That is totally true. That's right. But actually, if you don't actually talk about the other things as well, you're not giving people the fullness of the message. We could talk about love and acceptance, but then ignore challenging topics such as judgment and sin. So we could do that. We could ignore those things and just accept love and tolerance. We could water down our belief in the Bible as the word of God. We could collaborate with our culture. We could change our message to make it easier for people to accept. And many people have done this. And they end up in a form of universalism. Now, universalism is basically, and there's two forms of universalism. There's universalism and there's Christian universalism. Universalism is the idea that all religions lead to God. Christian universalism is that it doesn't matter what you believe, Jesus has saved everybody. So you don't even need to accept him as Lord. Actually, the work that Jesus has done on the cross is is good enough for absolutely everybody and everybody gets to come into the kingdom of God which sounds lovely, but it's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So therefore, actually, unless you come through to, the, to Jesus, actually, you're not going to get there. 
And Jesus is quite clear about that. He talks about there being two paths, as I said earlier on. So universalism, and, and that's, that would be a, a form of collaborating with culture. It's so easy to swim with the flow of culture and just allow it to wash over us and allow it to water down our beliefs in the process. However, we need to recognise that the gospel is divisive. The gospel isn't an easy message. And that's why some of us sometimes struggle to tell people about it, because it's not an easy message. You see, our society teaches that we need to love ourselves and that the answer to happiness is being true to ourselves. But the gospel tells us we're sinners in need of rescue. The gospel tells us that we're hopeless. The gospel tells us that we'll never find hope without God. That real happiness and joy can only be found in giving ourselves to Jesus. So no wonder Paul writes that the world, the world, the gospel is considered. So the world, the gospel is considered foolishness. He writes this to the Corinthians. He says, you know, the, the, those who are, are, are not being saved, the, the gospel's foolishness. It looks, it looks silly to people who aren't being saved. To us who are being saved, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. So Paul, in our reading in Acts, doesn't collaborate. He doesn't collaborate with the culture. He doesn't change his message in order to kind of just collaborate with the culture. He doesn't twist the gospel so that Christ is just another God among many. He doesn't kind of decide that he's just going to kind of carve an idol of Jesus and place it with the other gods and say, well, okay, Jesus is just one of these gods. He doesn't do that. He invites his hearers to know the God he believes in. And we find after our verses that not everybody accepts the message. In fact, if you carry on reading into Acts 17, it says that only that, that people sneered at him and only some accepted the message. So actually, his, his message was divisive. But Paul will not water down the message of the gospel. Paul will not change the message of the gospel to make it more palatable to people. Let me read you this from 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul would say that actually to change the gospel is disgraceful. To change the gospel is underhand. To, to change the message isn't right. He says it's cunning to do that, but it's not right. He is steadfast in the message of salvation. He talks about Jesus and the resurrection. He talks about the fact that all life comes from God. He actually talks about the fact that, that, that actually life started with one man. You, you read it in the text. That's what he says. He teaches the, the whole story of the Bible in five verses. It's incredible what he does. And he shares the truth of the, of the resurrection. He's steadfast in these things. He won't move from them. So we don't collaborate with culture. We're not about collaborating with it. Therefore, then, what about condemning culture instead? Why not? Well, let's, let's, let's condemn culture. Let's say culture's evil. Let's say it's all wrong. Maybe we should turn into Westboro Baptist Church and get our placards out and go up to London every week and, and, and shout down people who don't believe what we believe. Maybe we should do that. But we mustn't condemn. We mustn't condemn. We must leave that to God. God is the judge. We're his people. We need to heed the advice of Jesus. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, our role in culture isn't to act as judge, jury and executioner. That's God's job. That's God's job. Notice Paul doesn't condemn the Athenians. He doesn't say, you condemn you. This is outrageous. I can't believe you believe this. This is rubbish. How dare you? He doesn't. Instead, what he does is he shows them Jesus. He says, look, here's Jesus. 
You, you worship this unknown God. You know, so I've seen some Christians. You worship this unknown God. How dare you? No, no, you worship, this, you worship an unknown God. Here's his name. Okay, here's his name. I once sat on a, a train uh, going into London with Claire, and there was a group of girls on the other side that were talking about faith. It's like one of those kind of conversations my dad was talking about earlier on, where you get these situations that just happen. Um, you know, dad in the restaurant with that lady. But anyway, we were sitting on this train, and one of the girls was, there was a group of four girls there. There was, I think there was two Muslims, there was these, and then there's two Christian girls. And um, one of the girls was saying to her friends, oh, I'll never go back to church because they just won't approve of the way that I'm living my life. And I, I know that they won't accept me. And I don't think God will accept me either. So she was basically, she kind of, she, it was a much, much fuller conversation than that. But she was talking about how she felt rejected by the church and how actually if she went to church, she would feel condemned. And um, I was listening to this conversation, but I just couldn't hold it in anymore. I was like, I, I, to, to, I think people thought I was, a, I think I was worried that they were going to think I was a weirdo because I was, you know, a, a lot older than them. They were in their sort of like early teens. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're going to think I'm, 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 I'm a stranger. Um, but <laughs> stranger danger, yeah. But I said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't take this anymore. I need to tell you this. I said, hey, look, I've just been listening to you and I just, I just want to say you've got it all wrong. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for people like you. Jesus came for the broken. You're never too messed up for God. Jesus' purpose for dying for us was to make a way for us to have a relationship with God, no matter what we've done. You see, we're not called to condemn. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to go into all the world and shout down non-believers. That's not what he said. He told them to go and proclaim the kingdom is at hand. He said to go and heal the sick, to cast out demons, to, to demonstrate what's happening with the incoming kingdom, to show people that there's hope. You see, we need to be people who bring hope and not bring condemnation. You see, the broken don't need hostility. They don't need it. They need a saviour. Um, the other day, Claire and I went out shopping. Um, and uh, it was Wednesday, Wednesday morning. I, 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 go to, I, do, I do a master's at the moment in, in theology. And I had Wednesday off, which was rather nice. Um, I didn't have a lecture, which was great. So anyway, we went shopping. We walked all the way from our house, which is one end of the town, all the way to the outlet. We walked around the outlet. We were there for like two hours. We walked away back again. And on the way back, Claire said, oh, my word, Jude had fallen asleep. Who's in the buggy? Bappy, where's Bappy? Now, this is Bappy. Let me show you Bappy. Because you'll see. Here's Bappy. Bappy, where's Bappy? We spent like then the next two hours. Oh, it was about an hour. I'm over-exaggerating. We spent about an hour looking for Bappy. I ran all the way back to the outlet. I left Claire in the centre of town looking for Bappy. Why? Because this is Jude's most precious possession in all the world. Like, literally, he would not have slept without this. this would, we, in fact, Claire bought, bought a spare version of Bappy, like a new version. She found it on eBay, just in case we ever lost him. But he found it, and he, went, he looked at it the first time he looked at it and went, that's not Bappy, and, like, threw it away. So we're like, we have to look after this. This is so precious to us, and it's so precious to him. But to anybody else, it is, I mean, it's, it smells disgusting. It's, it smells like spit and milk. Um, it's disgusting. It's, and even if you wash it, it still looks exactly the same. It's disgusting. Nobody would want this. Nobody would want this. But Jude loves it. And we think this is so precious. This is so, honestly, this is like a lifesaver to me. This is precious to me. We want this. You see, here's the thing, right? See, you, you're never too messed up for God. God wants you. It doesn't matter what your life, you feel like your life looks like. Your life look, might, might look a lot worse than this. But God wants you. You are precious to God. There's a story in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the lost sheep. 
I read this to, to Jude actually often, and you know, the, the, the shepherd loses a sheep. So what does he do? He stupidly goes and he leaves the sheep to go and find the lost sheep. What a silly thing to do. But actually, there's something about the heart of God in that for you as an individual. That God doesn't want to see you just left broken, lost, isolated, damaged. God wants to find you and draw you back to himself. You see, Jesus came for the broken. He came for the lost. Jesus said this, those who are well need no need of a, have no need of a physician. They, they don't need a doctor, people who are well. But those who are sick. I came to call the righteous. Not, I didn't call to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus came for the broken. He came for the lost. So we don't condemn we, we lead the broken to the great restorer and fixer of souls. We lead the, the broken to Jesus. That's what we do. We don't condemn them. We say, look, here's Jesus. He wants to come and meet with you. If you're broken, come to Jesus. So we don't collaborate. We don't condemn. What about consuming culture? I spoke about consuming last week. And just to get back at this again, but maybe the best way to reach people is to just engage with culture so much and we just accept everything about it, all, all warts and all. And we just engage with it and we just take it all on. Um, you know, that, that's almost like a misinterpretation of what Paul writes elsewhere, be all things to all people. So maybe we just kind of just do that. So what we do, it's kind of like collaborating, but it's slightly different. Because in, in, this, in this sort of kind of sense, you go, oh, our culture is quite nice. I'm going to get involved. Shiny things, yeah? I really like it. Um, so, you know, so therefore we accept certain things that our culture seems to say is okay. So porn isn't that bad. Getting drunk is fun. So let's go and do it. Monogamy is just so last decade. Look at all these amazing relationships that people are having with several people at the same time. You know, we could accept our culture and just actually just go along with it again. But Paul didn't accept the Athenian culture. He didn't say, oh, okay, this is how you guys do life around here. Well, you know, I'll just crack on with you guys then. Let's come and debate everything together. No, he stuck to his guns. He stuck to his guns. Going the way of culture ends up with us not living in the faith that we profess to. We aren't living in obedience to God if we just go the way of culture. We aren't living the way of God to put off the old self and put on Christ. You know, it's like, imagine it's like wearing a garment. This is what Paul gets at when he talks about this in the New Testament. He says, you know, we, we, we put off the old self. We take it off and we put on Christ. So actually, there's, there's an action involved in that for you as an individual. Actually, daily, if you want to follow Jesus, that actually means you need to follow him. You can't just say, I'm a Christian and carry on doing everything you did before. Because essentially, you actually need to follow Jesus. So we need to follow him. Paul writes to Titus, he, he writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So this is a message of grace. You know, God did it. We're not earning our salvation. But actually, the grace of God brings salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So why, we, why do we want to pursue holiness as Christians? It's not so we earn God's approval. We could never do that. We're, just, we're dirtier than Bappy was when we come to Jesus. We can't ever earn God's approval. Okay? But what we can do is we can accept Jesus, accept his, his, his message of salvation, accept him as Lord and Saviour, and then choose to follow him. And, and, and what Paul writes here is that that act of Jesus saving us enables us to do that. So grace enables holiness. Grace enables godliness. So we mustn't idly consume our culture and not realise what's happening as we do that. So what's the answer then? How do we engage with our culture? How do we live as Christians today in our culture? Well, I'll put it to you that I think the example that we see with Paul here and, and again everywhere in Scripture is that we need to contend. We need to contend. We need to go from consuming to contending. 
We need to be a people who contend for the gospel. So we need to contend for the gospel to our culture. So we need to contend for it. Yeah, we need to fight for the gospel because it's the truth. It's the hope of all the worlds. We need to contend for it. We contend for the gospel in our culture, but also we need to contend for our culture before God. Okay, we need to contend for our culture before God. What does that look like? I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about seeking God. I'm talking about getting before God and saying, God, come and change things. God, come and break in. Come and move. I spoke last week about being devoted and not being complacent. Now, I'm following this up with contending instead of consuming this week. And I admit, I have stolen this from somebody. I've spoken about Mark Sayers before. If you want to hear a Christian talk about Christianity and culture, listen to Mark Sayers. He is amazing. Mark Sayers um, wrote a book called Reappearing Church as well recently, which is very good. See, we need to contend. We need to contend. Here in Acts 17, we see Paul contending for the gospel to Athenian culture. He gives them a plain message. He preaches Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18. He preaches that there is one creator God who rules over all things, verse 24. He preaches in verse 27 that all humankind can have a relationship with him. He preaches a very clear, plain message in three points, there you are. This would have been a stark contrast to both the Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, who encouraged their followers towards enlightening their thinking through self-development. So Epicureanism and Stoicism was about how you can enlighten your own thinking by, by, just, by, by doing. You, you can better yourself. You can better yourself was their message. That's our, that's our culture's message. It's the same thing. And, and actually, he says, no, no, you need Jesus. He contends for the truth of the gospel. You see, he appeals to them. He shows he understands their culture and their thinking and uses that as a basis for his message. But you notice the first verse there, he talks about, uh, just, just um, if we just, I'm going to scroll back to that. This is going to be dangerous. Hold on a minute. The first verse that he says, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. See, God had done something in him. He was provoked. He was provoked by God. Our culture should provoke us. It should provoke us because we should see something in it and we should say, that's just not what God wants. That's just not what the gospel is. It should provoke us. It should provoke us. So he contends for the truth of the gospel and we need to think about how we can share the gospel, how we explain concepts like sin in a postmodern and post-Christian culture. How do we do that? But we mustn't change the message. We mustn't not talk about it. We just need to think about how we talk about it. You see, Romans says, doesn't it, all have fallen short of the glory of God and everybody needs saving. We mustn't just move towards love covers all, sort of social action gospel. Jesus accepts you, not, Jesus doesn't just accept you, but all of your lifestyle as well. You see, we don't believe that Jesus, that Jesus just accepts everything about us. In fact, actually, Jesus wants us to come to him and be changed and to know change, and to know a new life in him. Jesus doesn't want you to remain the same. He wants to change you and make you more like him. You know, it's not about just come as you are and stay the same. It's no, come as you are and we will do you good. Come as you are and the gospel will change you. The gospel is, Je- the gospel is that Jesus comes to liberate us from ourselves. He comes to take the broken and doesn't leave them broken. And he calls to follow in, in obedience. You see, we have to contend for that in our culture. But lastly, we have to do this as well. And this is so important. And and God's really been speaking to me about this this week. We must contend for our culture before God's. We must do it. You know what will really change Ashford? What will really change Ashford is the presence of God. That's what will change Ashford. What will change Ashford is the presence of God. 
I'm calling us to prayer this morning. I'm calling you to get after his presence. Because when God steps in, everything changes. If you're a Christian here, you'll know that in your own life. That is true for you. God has stepped into your life and things changed for you. Okay? Blind, blind faith would be accepting everything without evidence. But actually, for us as Christians, I know that the gospel is true because it's changed me. That's the evidence. The gospel's changed my life. So I know it's true. There's also obviously lots of empirical evidence as well. But look, the gospel's changed me. That's why I know that Jesus rose again from the dead. Because the gospel's changed me. What will reform lives? The, the presence of God. What will change Ashford? The presence of God. Every move of God starts with a hunger for the presence of God. Every move of God. You read it in church history. So I said I'm doing a master's at the moment. I'm studying uh, the, 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 the birth of the charismatic. And what you find is in that, what happened was every move of God starts when people start seeking Jesus. One of our five cultures is seeking his presence. Well, look, I'll stick my flag in the ground and I'll say that, this. If, if we had to have one culture as a church, I would say it has to be seeking the presence of God. That's who we need to be as a people because it's only God's presence that will change lives. It's only Jesus that will come and change lives. We can't change people's lives for them. We can't expect people to change their own lives because that doesn't work. Jesus needs to come and do it. So we need to ask Jesus to come. Look at the Israelites in the desert. They, 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 they're called out of Egypt. They leave their possessions and the security and their homes and everything. They, and they go and they follow God. And who goes with them? Before them as a fire and behind them as a pillar of cloud. The presence of God. God was showing them that he was all they needed. And yet they grumble and complain constantly. But God keeps showing them, look, I'm all you need. I'm all you need. I'm all you need. It's not necessarily even about inhabiting the promised land in some ways. It's I'm all you need. The presence is all you need. And you notice actually that they didn't get the message. And so a whole generation then didn't go into the promised land. Because they didn't understand the message is all you need is God. All you need is his presence. His presence is all you need. So I said last week, I'm going after God in my own, my own prayer life. And as I pray more, as I seek more, I'm getting hungrier and hungrier for, and thirstier for the presence of God. It's like, you know when you have a, a, a new flavour of ice cream and you have like a little bit of it to see if you like it and then you're like, this is great! I just need more. I'm so hungry. And I could eat another one. That's, that's what I'm like with ice cream. Um, look, actually, the more you seek God's presence, the hungrier you'll get for God's presence. And I'm inviting you to join me in praying. Now, what we're not going to do is add another meeting into your busy lives, but we are going to do this. So every week we meet. Did you know that every week we meet before church to pray? Some of you maybe don't know this. Okay, so every, every week we meet before church to pray. We meet at 9.30 at the moment in the library. But from next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to change it. We're going to meet from 9.20 in the cafe. We're going to meet from 9.20 until 9.50, so 10 minutes before church starts. And we're going to pray. And we're going to pray for our church, for the presence of God in our meeting together, for our culture, for one another, so that when we start worshipping on a Sunday morning, something's lit. Yeah? Something's, something's there. Okay? We're going to pray every week. And I want to, I want to sweeten the deal with you a bit. Okay, so we're going to have coffee and pastries every week as well. Okay, but look, I, don't, I know I won't get through to everybody on this, and I know for some of you it's impossible to get here that early. I get, I totally understand that, and I, I'm not, you know. I also, I know that you're not probably not going to be able to do that every week. But please, can I encourage you to actually go? Well, actually, if I'm hungry about God, if I'm hungry about more of Him in my life, then I need to seek after Him. And if so, then I, I encourage you to come and join us. I encourage you to come and pray with us. 
It's not another date in your diary. It's just that it's an encouragement to turn up earlier to church on a Sunday and be expectant of what he might do.